0: Every six weeks or so, we've been, um, doing like a double sermon Sunday where I give a little sermonette on, uh, which is for me is like 17 minutes, um, on one of like our core values, one of the things we're doing together, um, in the church, and then I preach another sermon, um, on whatever we're supposed to be preaching about that day, but I, this week I kind of called an audible, and I want to spend the whole time on the, on the core value, who it is we want to be together, um which at this time of year is when we put in, we put in generosity. So um, that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. When I, was, um, when I had interns in Florida at my church there, one of the interns, a guy named Brian Rogers, decided to put together a list of my sayings, Nick's aphorisms. And one of them was, um, no matter how meaningful or how sincerely valuable or how sacred something is, you could make it sound ridiculous if you talk about it with the right tone of voice It's almost a pastime for people under 40 or so, you know We're fabulous at it I mean, we, It's not something you need to practice um, The reason I say that is because giving is one of those things That the outside culture We have our own cynicisms about generosity But it's one of the things that the outside culture, the secular city Does that They, they do sneer at it a good bit and um, there's three problems they normally find with Christian generosity, especially giving to the local church. Um, one, they see it as self-indulgent, right? It's our church. We give to our church. They go, you're just giving to yourself. You made a little country club for yourself. You give it for yourself. You get all the benefits. You're not giving to charity, right? It's this self-indulgent. Two, it's out of touch, right? People don't need God. They don't need your religion. They need education. They need healthcare. They need money to buy food. They don't, need, they don't need Jesus, right? And third, they tend to find it manipulative. They look at churches and giving and their budgets and they generally see them as the fruit of cash-seeking, name-seeking pastors that are trying to build a big enough building so that somebody will pay attention to them because their daddy didn't. Um, and so I want to actually start off this sermon by saying this. Don't Ever let anybody bully you about the meaningfulness and authenticity of your giving, about you living out the discipline and call of Christian generosity. Don't let people do that, not not only because um, theologically it's true, but because empirically the science actually affirms. This. I mean, there's been a number of studies on What's the reality about generosity in America And about the effect of local churches in local communities In 2010, um, a University of Pennsylvania professor Who's not a Christian as far as I know Got together with an inner city group And they, did it, they wanted to do a study on The actual impact, economic and social Of local congregations and they looked at 12 different congregations, 10 Protestant, one Catholic, and one Jewish synagogue. And they tried to figure out—now, you got to put—the problem with this is you've got to put numbers to things. What is a couple saved from divorce worth, right? What is a kid that doesn't go to jail, what's that worth, right? What's an averted suicide worth, right? But they had to go through and they had to put values to all these things. And, and what they found was is that, the, that the 12 congregations produced more than $52 million of value— socially and economically to the communities that they were in. All of them at least doubled their operating budget in actual help that they gave to the community, and a number of them, it was a multiple of six or seven times. The idea that churches are country clubs that benefit the people that go to them only is not true. It's never been true. It's a mythology that sounds good if you already want to believe it, but it's empirically false, and you don't need to be ashamed to support local, a local church if the local church is working anywhere near right those, church, those doors are open to everybody We don't give to ourselves, we give to anybody who wants to come and hear about Jesus And live out the implications of Jesus The second thing is That oftentimes um, people kind of sneer at Christian generosity Especially evangelicals, people who believe the gospel, they believe in Jesus, and they believe the Bible they're like, those people, they pretend they're generous But they're not really generous they give, they give a little bit of money to their church And they think that they're these wonderful philanthropists But really it's secular people and non-religious people And urban people that really get it And they're really generous And empirically that's just false There have been a number of studies on this now um, The data is, is non-sectarian It's from the International Social S- Survey Program And what they found multiple times in a number of different categories Is that non-religious secular people Especially if they identify themselves as politically liberal Give the least generously of any group in America It's just a fact Um, It's summed up in one book this way Sorry Sorry Respondents who are both secular and self-identified liberal are 19 percentage points less likely to give each year than religious conservatives, and nine points less likely than the population in general. They are even slightly less likely to give to specifically secular charities than religious conservatives. They give away less than a third as much as religious conservatives and about half as much as the population in general, despite having higher average incomes than either group. They're 12 points less likely to volunteer and are less generous in other, than others in many informal ways as well. Now, why do I tell you that? So that you can be a jerk? So that we can stereotype a group and feel like we're better than them and be moralists? Not intentionally And please don't do that Here's why I tell you that Because I, I don't want you to be judgmental But I don't want you to be intimidated or bullied either And sometimes we Sometimes we Christians are really annoying But sometimes we play too nice and we let people step all over us And be hypocritical And say that we're judgmental While they judge us And tell us whatever they want And make up whatever mythologies They want to publish And try to make us feel small Embarrassed about what we believe And what we give to What we're part of What we fight for What we volunteer for What we give our blood for And it's just And it's false It's a lie And many of the people Who publish it Know it's a lie And I don't want you To be bullied by it And I don't want you To be intimidated by it I want you to be free of that And you don't have to be mean about it But I don't want you to feel small because of it Now That's the good news (laughs) What we also need to recognize is this Is there financial malfeasance and stealing and stuff like that in churches? Absolutely Oh (laughs) They get publicized a lot better than malfeasance than anything else Right, I remember reading a study Remember when the, the Catholic church was getting all these scandals For kids getting molested in churches A much higher percentage of kids are getting molested In public schools per capita But you never heard about that in the news It's just picking and choosing What are you going to do? Um, but there's a lot of financial malfeasance anywhere, and, and in churches But the, what we do is not go, well I'm going to be cynical I'm never going to give What we have to do is we have to be humble enough To realize that we're sinning scumbags And Including the pastor And we need to put things in place that are wise So to minimize the potential for that As much as we can It's one of the reasons we have a budget of more than a million dollars You know how much money I have direct control over In terms of budgeting and use? It's less than $20,000 In the whole budget I don't have the ability to say spend that money on that I I don't have any right to do that I don't touch money, I can't sign checks I don't know what anybody gives The only time we check how much somebody gives Is if they're going to become an elder because if you're gonna have that much say over other people's money, you better be invested here yourself. It's just hypocrisy if you're not. So if you're nominated for eldership, you need to know that. <laughs> um, I have account- personal accountability meetings every other week, and I have no relationship to the finances. I don't touch any money, I don't sign anything, I don't—anything like that. And all of our checks need two signatures. We just had a full audit this year, we have sub-audits every every year. It, And we—and that's all because we don't believe we're better than anybody else. We believe that sin doesn't happen if you are a secular liberal or a secular conservative or this or a religion—it happens to humans. Humans are corrupt. That's what the gospel says. And so we want to be wise about it and be humble about it. The other thing is this, is we don't judge ourselves by people who we might stereotypically be theoretically, statistically superior to in a single category— I mean, how shallow are we, right? We don't judge ourselves by people who, you know, engage in other studies and say, oh, I'm in that group and they're in that group, so we, I must be better. Well, maybe not. Maybe you're, maybe you're dragging me down, right? But what we do is we look, we look at Jesus, right? We think about generosity. We don't think, am I more generous than that person over there? Am I, am I making it in the curve? We think about the generous God, Right? The Bible has at least three clear reasons for why generosity is important One is because godliness means being like God in all the ways we're supposed to be And one of the things that God is and one of the ways we can be like him is generosity The second is because the recipients of generosity, people matter to God They're created in his image and they're just as sacred as anybody else Doesn't matter if they agree with your politics Doesn't matter if they do something that's sinful Doesn't matter if they do something that you think is unforgivable And puts them in a class of moral monster None of that matters in relationship to their their Being recipients of grace And generosity Right And then thirdly The love of money Scripture says is the root of all kinds of evil Right there is, there is a idolatriness, idolatrousness to it And a lethalness in greed um, But generosity transforms lives and hearts It can undo that It can change us God can use it to do something really cool Or if you put it in three words, it would be this That generosity flows from worship From mission From transformation It doesn't just flow, flow from transformation It helps create transformation So, I think I can make this claim on biblical grounds. A generous life is a life of worship, mission, and transformation. And the reverse is actually more true that a life of worship, mission, and transformation is always generous. So, if you look at um, the core values of High Point Church, this is really important to us. It's in our top five core values sacrificial generosity. And we don't put the word generous in, we put the word sacrifice in as the one word summary. Right? We believe in the gospel. We're, we're, we believe we're saved by the graciousness of God. We don't, we don't come to God so that we can receive therapy or so that we can become moralists and feel like we're better than other people. We come because God freely gives salvation to anybody who will believe and we're just like everybody else. And so we believe the gospel, the good news, right? We believe the Bible. We believe the Bible. We shouldn't just attend to it and have biblical integrity, but we believe in biblical literacy. We should actually know the thing. We believe in community, that spiritual care... And spiritual growth happens best when we do it together, when we love each other and we get in each other's faces. We believe in sacrifice, that we should be becoming a community for others. And that sacrificial generosity of your time, of your personal risk, and of your resources is the result of the gospel and the price of influence. And we believe in contextualization, that when we talk about the gospel, we need to listen to our neighbors In the city And we need to try to make it Say it so they can understand it And answer the questions they're really asking Rather than be as obscure as possible And use our little religious languages So let's go through those three things First is worship Worship is essentially the response to the generous God God is enormously generous And so if we become like him It'll probably make us more generous Think about Psalm 130, right? What, what is the great thing that that, that that psalmist is thinking about? The thing that's so great about God that draws in his devotion, that, that makes him willing to wait for God, is the fact that God gives forgiveness. One of the things that you have to get clear is that this—we are not in the business of life improvement. Life improvement happens when we're about the business we're really about, which is the offer of forgiveness that God gives all of humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're in the forgiveness business, guys. And forgiveness is the first mark of generosity. Let me just let me just tell you something straight away, right? We're not—I'm not even talking about money. Here. If you don't forgive, you're not generous. In fact, in this context in the psalm, he says, But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. What does fear mean in that context? God forgives, so we're terrified? No, in that context, fear is going to mean something like responded to, obeyed, moved towards, taken seriously, paid attention to, right? Right? In fact, it, even people who have went to public school Can figure out That, and I did, so I can say that, right That the word give is in the word forgive I mean, forgiveness is fundamentally generosity When you forgive somebody, who pays the bill? Who pays the bill for the blood they owed you For what they did to you? You do If there's any personal bill to be paid Whenever you forgive somebody, you say, whatever I could extract from you because of what you did, it's, it's, it's done. There's no balance anymore. It's over. I can't reopen the account or the tab. It's done. That's what forgiveness is. It's fundamentally an act of generosity. And God demonstrated its generosity by demonstrating it in his son, right? I mean, the most famous verse in the Bible is, of course, Matthew 7, 1, Right? Don't judge or you'll be judged, right? Everybody, even people who don't go to church like to quote that one. But probably the second most famous one is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Right? Love produces generosity. It always has. It always will. And it produces sacrificial generosity. Now, the, the question is— what are you going to do with the fact that God is that gracious, loving, and generous? Because there's, there's really only two effects it can have on you. Either it'll change you or it'll spoil you. If you see that God is that generous and it does something to you, then it'll change you. It'll make you want to be like God in all the ways you should be like God in terms of characters and passions. To become morally like God To care about the things God cares about For those things to be important to you He cares about redemption, you care about redemption Right? The Bible calls that godliness Becoming like God in the ways we should be like God Without mistaking it for the ways we can never be like God Generosity is meant to change us God's generosity to us creates godliness in us Or the other is possible It can spoil us We can receive so much In material and health and life And sun and moon and stars and rain and That we think we're gods It just kind of occurs to us that All my needs are taken care of You you feel like you're a god little G You want to be like God But not in his character and his passions You kind of feel like you're God In terms of his authority and power and independence It'll do one of the two things to you Either you'll take it for granted and you'll get spoiled or you'll be so struck by it that it'll really transform you. You have to respond to the generous God and we're meant to respond to the generous God with godliness to be like him in his character and his passions and God is passionate about and in his character he is always generous. Always. The second is mission. Mission. That generosity is part of working with the redeeming Savior. When one of the things about the New Testament— this is only the second time I think I've taught on generosity in the three years I've been here at High Point. And one of the things that people always ask me when I finish teaching on it is they say, Nick, don't you care about tithing? Right, tithings in the Bible, giving ten percent. If everybody did that, we'd have a budget of three million dollars, and everything'd be great. And um, I actually do believe in that. That's the benchmark, Alexi, and I use. But it's only mentioned kind of obscurely one place in the New Testament. All the New Testament's teaching on giving is like this, where the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. It's kind of a rich Corinth is kind of a rich city, right? It'd be, it'd be a little bit like Paul went and got and took an offering in Eau Claire. And and he comes here and he's going to take an offering here And he compares us to them, right? And so he says, I'm not commanding you But I want to test the sincerity of your love By comparing it with the earnestness of others In this case, it was the Macedonian churches In northern Greece For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Grace could just as easily be the word generosity The free giving of our Lord Jesus Christ That though he was rich Yet for your sakes he became poor so that through your, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't think about a percentage right now. I want you to think about the fact of Jesus being generous with you. And then you just respond. That's all. Just respond, do whatever you want. The New Testament more systematically teaches about giving like that. I, I think one of the other... Um, one of the other passages that's kind of interesting that I never really thought about in these terms until this week. I was, I was watching a talk by Rick Warren that he gave at the Resurgence 13 conference. I put it up on the blog if you want to see it. It's a really good talk. But he actually uses this passage in Luke 4 to talk about generosity. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. Clearly about generosity, right? (laughs) Now think about that temptation, right? The temptation is not to do something to serve Satan, but to do something to help himself. Right? And Jesus can clearly do this Because later on in the Gospels right, He feeds 5,000 with a few loaves of bread And feeds 4,000 another time Could be as many as 15,000 people When you count women and children and all that kind of stuff So who knows, right? He's raising people from the dead Clearly he can turn a pebble into a piece of bread And he won't do it He just answers positively i got plenty to eat I have the word of God right? But what's the fundamental dynamic? Why not do it? Is he just doing it because he wants to contradict Satan and be like, well, you told me to do that, so I'm not doing it, you know? Or is there there a virtue at stake? Is there something about the truth of it at stake? And here's what it is. Find a place anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus used the power of his sonship or the power of the Holy Spirit in him to do something for himself. Can we save you some time? You're not going to find it. Jesus never uses his power generously towards himself. That's not what it's for. It's for redemption. All of the resources that he has, he pours outward. He freely gives to the point where his family thought he was crazy and they had to do crowd control because people were piling up next to him who showed no real interest in his message but wanted to be healed and wanted to be fed and wanted these things, and he just gave it. A little later on in Matthew's gospel, um, when Jesus is handing off the ministry to his disciples, he says, listen, um, what I, you've watched me do, he took 70, 70 people, got them together, he said, now receive the power of the Holy Spirit, now you go out and you do the same stuff that I've been doing. And this is what he says to him. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. So apparently he gave him a significant amount of spiritual resources, I would say. And then he says, freely you've received, freely give. That's a great verse to memorize. You can memorize that in like three seconds. You would be like, I've memorized a Bible verse today. Freely you've received, freely give. And then he says this, do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker's worth his keep. Right? Take no provisions. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, the power of God isn't an iPhone. Okay? It, if, if you make a commodity, you actually produce it through your work and Ingenuity, you've got the right to sell it, right? You produce an iPhone, whatever continent you produce it on, you have the right to sell it, right? Because you made something. And so you can charge for it. But that's actually not true about the power of God or about the gospel. You didn't—you didn't, you didn't add—if you added to it, you ruined it, right? You, you just received. You just got. And he said, because of that, this is not an economic relationship between you and the people that you're going to. You just give— You receive freely, you just give freely. And what that will produce in other people is the same desire. You don't need provisions. The love that the gospel produces, they'll take care of your needs, and you just trust God that he's going to give you the power you need to help them, and he's going to give them the drive of generosity to just simply take care of you. And that's how this is going to go. See, their maintenance— And their ministry was totally dependent on generosity. It was the fundamental value and fulcrum of how the whole thing worked. Faith expressed in generosity. Freely receive, freely give. And notice the parallel between the ministry of the Savior and the ministry of his disciples. We're meant to be parallel to it. It's the way we are supposed to be like him in his generosity. And then lastly, transformation. The love of money, Scripture teaches, is idolatrous and it's lethal. There's a reason why it's on a list called the seven deadly sins, right? But generosity is God's tool to transform hearts. One of the things that I really liked about um, Warren's talk that I, I put up on the blog that you might want to listen to um, is that he said—he he looked at this passage and he said, listen, if you understand this passage in First John— what you'll realize is Satan only has really three major temptation themes, and everything else is basically improvisation off of these three themes. Right? He says—this is the Apostle John writing in the church—he says, don't love the world, and world in this context means everything in creation that set itself up contrary to God. It doesn't mean literally the mountains and the streams, and the, but it means that which is not— set up in a quarter submitting to the gospel and and the truth about Jesus. The world, or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the older translation is lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, the older translation, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man or woman— Who does the will of God lives forever. It's these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Which you could say is like this. The lust of the flesh is a temptation to feel. It's the sense that you have the personal right to feel whatever you feel like you need to feel to be happy. It's what what tells you it's okay to have that relationship that you know is wrong. It's the thing that allows you to indulge when you know you shouldn't. It's it's the desire to feel. You don't you have the right to feel, right? The second lust of the eye is the temptation to have, to accumulate either for your pleasure or for your security. It's looking it's looking through glasses that have accumulation written on them rather than generosity, right? And then the third is the pride of life, the desire to be something, to have a name, to be respected, to be affirmed, to be approved of. To be thought something of To not be a normal person Right Now In Warren's talk He talks about the three anecdotes to these Is integrity Generosity And something else Integrity Generosity I'll get back to you Watch the talk See that was on purpose and then he says—and then he says the—it's um, humility, sorry. Yeah, that's the one I didn't remember. That's great. <laughs> and he said, you know, when integrity is fighting the pride of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, when generosity is fighting the lust of the eye, and when humility is fighting the pride of life, he's like, then you're actually in a place where you could really have faith. Because you're not a slave to your stomach— You're not just seeking what you can take from the world, and you don't care about your name. And so you can risk anything. You can try anything. You can do anything. I mean, you can actually try something that's impossible. You could have a God-shaped dream or a God-shaped vision or something that actually would require God to accomplish. And you're never going to do that if you're under the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, or the pride of life. It's never going to happen. But what I want you to see in relationship to generosity is that generosity actually attacks all three of these. When it's done right, when it's practiced according to scriptural principles Because the desire to feel When you give away your money, you can't buy the stuff That you want to get to worship your stomach And you begin to encounter and engage the feeling that comes from virtuous action or godliness Godliness feels awesome Even when you're not feeling self-righteous Self-righteousness is a drug It'll get you high, you'll feel good But it's terrible for you Right, But godliness has its own enormously wonderful effects of joy and pleasure and gladness to see other people's lives get better, to see people blessed, to see people stronger, to see relationships mended. If you can't get pleasure out of that, I don't know what to tell you. We need to get back to Jesus. I guess I do know what to tell you. And when you give generously— to something that is gospel focused, you begin to take pleasure in something that isn't your stomach. Lust of the eye, giving changes the glasses from accumulate to give. You start thinking differently. And until you start thinking differently, you can't really be generous. And when it comes to the pride of life, you know, up until about maybe 30 years ago I don't know if I have the time of that But when I was a kid, I remember that giving, especially if you were going to give a lot of money, for example It was expected that you would do that anonymously Anonymous giving was part of the threadwork of culture It's totally gone now, right? Let me, just, let me tell you a secret, okay? Um, I don't ever plan to do a building campaign But let's just say hypothetically we did a building campaign and you, somebody, somebody gave like $3 million Of the $4 million to build a new building I'm just going to tell you right now Your name is not going on the building Okay, We're not even going to tell the church Who you are Right Because I don't want to hurt you Spiritually It's my job to be a shepherd um, Anonymous giving Takes away your resources to make a name for yourself And you get nothing for it in terms of a name for yourself It's so good for you And Jesus explicitly said to do it that way. That's where the quote, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It has to do with giving. It has to do with being anon- having anonymity. And make no mistake, Jesus made very clear that there's an enormous amount about your heart at stake in this. If you remember this passage— Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he's still talking about money in this next verse, right? He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. See the parallel between that and the lust of the eye from First John? Where do you think John got that idea? He might have got it from Jesus. Right? And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's why generosity is so important. That's why it saves in relationship to the lust of the eye and greed. How are we doing? All right. Um, so I need to talk about something else right now. One of the things I think is important is I think you and I have to have an understanding about what I'm trying to do as the point leader for this church in relationship to money. Because I, there's hardly anything more important than trust when you're giving to an organization. Because you could give to God and not give to High Point, right? Um, I think it's important if you're part of a local church that you give the lion's share of what you give to that local church. But I can't make you do anything, and I don't want to make you do anything. Freely receive, freely give, right? So I want you to know what my goals are. Um, and so here they are. One is, I want to help as many people as possible experience the blessing of generous Christian living, I don't want to apologize for that. I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, living generously has enormous benefits. It's it's happy, it's good, it's wholesome, it's honorable, it's beautiful, and it, um, it it's a way of living out the gospel that is extremely powerful. Because when you give away your money, <laughs> I mean, you, you want to know what's important to you. Look, you know, it's the old saying. Chuck Colson maybe said it Look at your checkbook Or your Your online account Or whatever And your calendar Google will tell you What's important to you um, and, and just don't even bother With the pretense of Yeah this is what I spend All my time on And this is what I spend All my money on But my value system Is totally different Whatever Except for that One of your values Is to lie to yourself Apparently right And I want people To experience that And I'm not going to shirk back from talking about generosity and about sacrifice. You you cannot experience the joy that Jesus has for you without sacrifice. Paul said, I want to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? Philippians 3. The second thing is that I want to help as many people as possible experience financial freedom. And that's different than living generously. Those aren't the same thing. Most Americans are in financial bondage. Broke is what's normal. And it's not that I'm concerned about that in relationship to your church giving. I mean, sure, I'd love you to give $50 million, whatever. But I don't really care about that. What, What I care about is this, is that financial bondage really hurts people. It destroys marriages, causes all kinds of fights. It causes us to waste more money because we've wasted some money already. It causes us to make moral decisions we wouldn't otherwise make. Um, It narrows the number of options that are conceivable in our life because of the shackles that those financial debts are. And so I, as a pastor, I run into people pretty regularly who— they say something like, I didn't have a choice And when you really get down to the bottom of it It was because they felt like they couldn't financially do something else Early in the new year, we're, we'll, we'll start a financial peace university class And you'll hear some testimonies One of the couples took it last year And they paid off all their debts And they you know, really got where they, where, they, where they wanted to be And God put it on their heart to adopt Now, I don't know if you know this Adoption's got like a 40k price tag A year ago, they would have prayed They would have felt like God was impressing that on their heart And they would have ignored it They would have been like, well, God wouldn't call us to something we can't ever do And they would have just kind of gone on with their lives But because it was theoretically possible Because the, the risk could be taken They could consider it, and they did And they believe that's what God wants them to do And they're quite a ways down the road in the adoption process now Financial freedom is not just about giving in your Christian life It's about opening the vistas of possible risk And roads that you could take And ideas you could try And things you could participate in And I just want that for as many people as possible Um, As an organizational leader I want to increase individual member giving as high as possible And I want to decrease per capita expense as much as possible the reason for that is I want to produce as big a surplus as we can to send out for the kingdom of God and for the good of all people. Now, that can only work if you don't decide you're giving by looking at the bulletin and seeing how far ahead we are. Because here's the thing. I want to be, I want to be financially conservative. I want this church to be in better financial shape every year. And, and so we try to control expenses, and we don't spend more money than we have, and we, we try to do things that are really reasonable. And because of that— I mean, if you look in your bulletin, I think we're something ahead of our budget. And that has something to do with management. It has a lot to do with generosity of people in this church, a lot of you. Our budget went up quite a lot last year, and we're $17,000 ahead. That's amazing. But if as the church grows, all of us work hard in the church, and we don't have to hire staff for everything, Right? We grow in godliness and actually doing the work of the gospel, but we grow in generosity. That means what we'll have to spend to do ministry will decline because we're doing the ministry. What we give will go up. The surplus will get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we will be able to fund the most exciting things we know about for the kingdom of God and for the good of people. That's what I want. I I, would—I so want to see High Point get to the point where we're giving away 30 or 40 percent of the dollars that are given every year outside of these doors— Right now we're at like 11%, maybe 12%. Which is awesome. It's the best of any church I've pastored in. Except maybe one. But I don't, I don't, I don't decide this stuff on the basis of what other people are doing. Remember the first part of the sermon? I don't care what other churches are doing. I'm sick of people telling me what can be done in church. Jesus is Jesus. I'm going to follow him and we're going to try stuff. I don't want to be bored my whole life. Do you? One of the things I've been thinking about For the last couple of weeks Is my 2030 plan In in 2030 I'll be 53 Yeah Which which, It was a little disturbing for me But then I told Lisa she'd be 40 And she was like (laughs) (laughs) And High Point Church was designed To function financially well At about 800 people And the people who were here three years ago when I got here gave so generously that this church survived at like 275. The core of High Point, that's who they are. And listen, they did that when the church was terrible— like They would come on Sunday morning and they would have to like go home together for lunch so nobody put a gun in their mouth. And yet, they still were here and they gave and they believed that God would turn this around, that something new would happen, that God was going to do something here and that a new day would come and that who knows what was... I mean, they didn't even know. And, and then, you know, here's the joke. I'm here, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah, let's hire a 33-year-old. You know? I blame Chris Pepler. Um, but... When, when I got here, there was $2 million of debt We have what you might call infrastructure debt All kinds of stuff that has to be fixed that hasn't been fixed for 10 years That we're behind on That's all real debt And there's no operating debt There's no operating surplus Like we don't have money in the bank that's like, well, let's try stuff And when, when I get to that point, I want to I be in a place where I can start to move away from the center of leadership and I can we can start inviting more and more of these other leaders and I would like to leave the senior pastor thing and be like a teaching missions pastor and we'll get somebody else to be the you know, and when that all starts to happen, um, I want here's what I want. I want the I want the building to be totally paid off. I want us to have fixed everything that needs to be fixed. And I want to have somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter million dollars in the bank so that when they have cockamamie ideas that they want to try and and, and the church feels that God is leading us in that direction, we can try stuff, we can do things, we don't have to freak out. I want them to come to work every day. And I want every leader to come to church every week, not thinking about money, but thinking about people and ministry and redemption and how that's going to happen. Because we don't have any bills, we pay $15,000 a month on our mortgage. Imagine we could do $15,000 a month, right? And the whole purpose for that is investing. I I, want—the most fun for me—I don't know about you, the most fun thing for me, besides somebody coming to Jesus, that's the most fun thing in my Christian life. The second most fun thing in my Christian life is funding people who are actually going to help people come to Jesus. I hate— when I see somebody who is gifted Who loves Jesus Who has a mission, has a vision Knows what they need to do Really feels like God has called them I believe that God has actually called them And they do- simply don't have the dollars To try what they want to try that, that just bothers me to no end And some of it's because There's no editing process And all the people there are to support But some of it is just money's well, just not there You know and um, That's one of the reasons why I think as, as much as we want to increase our missions giving um, We need to be a church that is investing A significant amount of money every year in church planting We, we need to plant hundreds of churches across America every year just, just to stay even And it's those churches where all the innovating is happening Because they have to or they have to close their doors it's where a lot of young leaders are being brought in it's, it's a place where we can try all kinds of crazy stuff And it's a place where we can replant the church In places where it's gone extinct And um, you'll see that when you look at the year-end gift That there's money in there for missions projects And there's money in there for church planting Even though there's so much stuff to be done here We can't do it all at once We can't just pay everything off here until it's all done That's, that's not going to be fun, is it? So we take a portion, we do what we need to do We take a portion and we send it out right now Right. So those are the—okay, that's my agenda. You want to know my agenda? That's my agenda. That's going to be my agenda for 17 years. Okay? Are we all on the same page? And if you think I'm averting from that agenda, you just tell me. Now I want to take just a couple minutes and talk about— um, so what about person? like what's the personal challenge for you? Like, wh- what should we all be—what should we take home and think about and pray about and consider— In relationship to generosity. And the first thing is, if you haven't gone through the process of thinking totally differently about finances in relationship to God, that has to happen first. You've got to believe God created and made all things, that he gives you all things, that you belong to him, that there's a—the most important thing in the world is the mission of Jesus that will last forever. Um, That all has to happen. What you do with your money tells us what you believe about God's providence and sovereignty in your life— it's, it, it tells us what you think about God's graciousness and generosity. It tells, you, it tells you and everybody else what you think you're here for, what you think you're here to do. It tells everybody what your loves are. And until you get a real gospel motivation in relationship to your money, none of this can really go anywhere, frankly. So you got to start there. The second thing is, is that if you're, if you're not experiencing financial freedom right now, where you, your money's telling you what to do instead of you telling your money what to do, you, that's the first step. And my response to that is, uh, look for the FPU class. It's going to happen early next year. Probably in January, hopefully, if we can get it going that fast. And any small group can get together and do it. You can do FPU in your, in your small group. Just let us know. We'll get you materials, and we'll, uh, we'll even give you a leader if you want one. It makes a huge difference in people's lives. I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard from the 100 or 120 people at High Point that have gone through that class and who tell me, my whole life is completely different. Even people who weren't in that much debt Third And this is just This is really probably just for fun Is to be aware of your group tendency One of the things that we tend to do Is we tend to think Think positively about whatever group we're in And we think that other people are the slackers And um, sometimes it's good to know What your demographic is doing Right For example If you survey people in their 20s and 30s About how generous they are They, they self-report that they're the most generous generation and in point of empirical fact, they're the least generous generations, I should say Because these guys would be horrified for me to say I'm in their generation um, But it's just a fact Th- 20s and 30s gen- generally indulge the idea it's, like, it's kind of like the Lake Wobegon: like 80% of people are above average, right? Or something like that You know, it's that kind of just sort of self-indulgent thinking And the fact is, no, you're not generous No, you're not you know, and, and stereotypically, boomers are as generous as the stock market is good, and the builders just give and shut up about it, you know? And we, we just need to know that. Oh, so here's another one. This will give away your political ideology. If you were to split up people into three groups, the rich are—they oh, make the family income of over $90,000 a year, middle class is ninety to $30,000 a year, and the poor are people who make less than $30,000 a year. Which group gives the highest percentage of their income to charities? Rich. Poor? Middle class. Okay. It's the rich. Buy a little bit. And then, do you know who's next? It's the poor, and it's specifically the poor that make less than 12,000 dollars a year in family income. Oh 13. It's 12.99 they make less than just under $13,000 a year that's the next biggest giving group and then 13,000 to 30,000 you know who's dead last the middle class is dead last in our, in our political ideologies anesthetize us to this Because if you're like conservative Republican It's like, you know, you're like Well, everybody's generous And, you know, the rich are going to give plenty of money And whatever And if you're, if you're liberal, it's like It's all about the poor And they're so generous And we should do programs for them Listen, here's what actually happens Most of the programs in this country Are designed to benefit the middle class And we get out more than we pay in Think about the lottery where does that money go? Mostly to universities. And who buys those tickets? People who are never going. What does that mean? It's a huge transfer of wealth from the poor to the middle class. That's what it means. Right? It's just, it's just reality. Don't let yourself believe that we're the generous middle class. That all of American life is against us, and the government is squeezing out squeezing us out, and there 's not going to be a middle class in the future it 's going to be so terrible. No, no. Here's what happens. We look at the people who make no, more than $90,000 a year, and we think, well, he can get a Beamer. I should be able to at least get a nice Camry. And can't we get this house? And can't we do this? And what happens is the middle class chooses, we choose locked-in lifestyle expenses that take up the majority of what should be our disposable income. And so we lock ourselves into mortgages and car payments and stuff that make it so we can't be generous because we're trying to get approximately close to the people that make ninety k and over. And so we put ourselves in this position where we're the least generous people in America When, in theory, we should be the second most Right? Sometimes just knowing what your cohort is doing Will take away your silly excuse That's all, right? And I'm the worst, like I'm I'm, I'm both of those, right? Four is you have to budget and save for the whole picture Because sometimes what you do is you be like Well, let's give this much to the church, right? And here's the problem What's going to happen at the end of the year? Newsflash, right? We're going to do year-end generosity every year, right? And what's going to happen somewhere in the, of, in the middle of the spring? 50,000 Campus Crusade students are going to descend upon us With short-term mission trip letters, right? To go share the gospel in Atlantic City Or go spend six weeks in Uganda or whatever for the glory of God And for a wonderful tan Now, listen And, I, and listen, I'm for that Listen, I'm for that I'm just, I'm just messing with them um, But part of, Listen, part of the thing is You know how I feel When somebody gives me One of those support letters? It's directly proportional To the amount of money I've already saved for that So if I don't have any money In my short-term missions fund I feel kind of annoyed Because I wasn't waiting for this I didn't See it coming And so now it's like, oh, you're messing with my plan Right But when Alexi and I have accumulated Like $500 in our short-term missions fund We're like, we're just, we're like looking for some idiot to give it to You know And it's just whoever comes first wins You know, it's like, it's not really But but we, like, Alexi and I, we have line items For this stuff, like, we have our church giving Just 10% of our income, just straight off the top Right, and then we have Two or three long-term missionaries we support monthly and then we save for hospitality Because people are going to come to our house And they're going to eat our food And they're going to cost us money, right? Or live at our house for several months, right? And, and then, and then It's just a cost of living, sorry And then, and then, and it, you know there's, And then there's short-term missions And there's these things And you've got to see the big picture, right? I want to support these college students, right? They're going to go out there and try something crazy Let's send them Right, I, I want to support the ministries of the local church. I want to help pay off the debt. I want to I wanna have people in my house. I want them to feel at home. It's going to cost me money. You know, toastitos and stuff. So you've got to think bigger picture. You can think a lot bigger picture than that, but that's just the starters. And then fifth, and if you only take away one, take away this one. Unless you're not experiencing financial freedom, then take away number two. Seek to be more generous every year than the year before Seek to be more generous Because see, some of you guys are kind of like 10% That's crazy Is this a cult? Listen, I can give however much I want Back off, right? I mean, I didn't tell you what you had to do But here's the thing Um, Generosity is kind of like weightlifting Or like going for a run or something like that It's only helping you additionally when it hurts Okay? So you see, when I was 16 Well, I was like 18 or 19 So I'm 18 or 19 I'm working in college as a referee for like hockey And I get a paycheck And I feel like I should give So I gave 10% of it right then, right? And so I have never had that 10% in my whole life I've never had a paycheck Where I had more than 90% of it So you see, it doesn't do anything for me anymore Right? It doesn't do anything for me Only when when I push it Does it hurt again And produce anything in me Now, that doesn't mean you give 20%. (laughs) Like, Lexi and I have worked for years to get to almost 12. And at the year-end gift, we look our savings account in the face, and we go, every coffee you didn't buy, every day we ate that, every— how much of this are we going to take out and give to this? And those two times a year, it hurts. And it's a—but it's a good hurt. It's a, I'm falling out of love with my money again hurt and deciding whether or not I believe in this thing I'm doing. And so for some of you, it's going from, you know, giving $5 whenever you have $5 in your wallet whenever you do go to church to going, what if I looked at my budget and I said, I'm going to give this much a month and it's just going to be $5 a month or a week or whatever. And then for some of you, it's going to be something crazy. Like my kid just went to college. I don't have a college bill. We've got two incomes now. Let's do something crazy. I don't know what it is for you That's the thing Here's the problem Me not being legalistic Is going to be much worse For your bank account If you love Jesus It just is If you look at Your thing I'll do this real quick The back of the generosity thing Is the year-end gift The amount we settled on Was $76,000 Sadly There are Like maintenance stuff in here We've got to fix these front doors we, we, we're not up to par security-wise And our security company is like Look, you gotta fix these doors And it's like 40-something thousand bucks But the school's paying a big portion of it Out of their budget And so it's like $26,000 for us There's some things like that that just aren't that fun But there's four different missions projects There's two church plants One of them is a guy in Cambridge Square Between MIT, Harvard, and Boston University He church planted when I came here And his church is almost bigger than High Point. And now, this is a guy that walks into Harvard Square and leads people to Jesus, right? Now they're launching a new campus in downtown Boston. And I want to—we're going to give them some seed money to get that campus going. Right? Because he's a barn burner, man. You got to fund barn burners. Another one is a church in Indianapolis. It's a church for the unchurched. It's right near Butler University. It's serving a place that's deeply underserved, and it's doing these really neat community outreach things, and they just need some seed money to, to keep rolling with that church plant. There's some exciting things on here, too. One of the things that's not on here is kiosks for better children's check-in. So if you want those, you've got to overgive $4,200. bucks. you have got to hit 80 And if you do, we'll have electronic kids check-in. That's probably not a godly motivation, but <laughs> if we get that far, that's what we'll do. But all this stuff is going to get us further down the road, closer to where we need to be. Able to give away more, able to bless people, able to fund the kingdom of God, able to do all kinds of things, and able to put us in a situation where we're really working on our hearts and able to live out generosity because of worship, because of mission, and because of the transformation we want to see in our lives. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for not being a taskmaster in this. Thank you for making generosity a free action That there, there aren't the piles of commands about it But that you call us to just respond to you You even say in the scriptures That you've given us all things for our enjoyment So we wouldn't get the idea That you're demanding You give us 100% and you demand back 100% It's not like that You're generous with us You call us to be generous We're left to test our own hearts and to seek you for what that would be. And so, Father, please help us to be a generous people, to be a financially free people, to be a disciplined people, to be a sacrificial people, to be people that just honestly look like Jesus, to be a people full of godliness, not self-righteousness, and not idolatry pray that you'd make us not a money-obsessed church, but a wildly generous church. And help me to lead the way, and help many people to be examples of what it looks like, and help us have great effect. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a couple songs here to end. Before you stand up...